protein has in its dialectic and cruel way reminded the Europeans um, why they set up um, the European Union. It will be a tipping point. I mean, you and me come from places where this tipping point was reached at some point. And I will say that the day the Berlin Wall came down, if you had asked me in the morning of that day whether the wall would come down, I would have said, this is hilarious. I mean, how can you think of something like that? Welcome to Gogolin, the Eurozine podcast with authors and editors of culture journals from throughout Europe and beyond. Eurozine is an online magazine and a network of 90 partners, journals, magazines and associates from Belgium to Belarus, from Norway to Bulgaria, publishing literature and analyzing politics, reflecting on culture and bringing diverse voices to a joint conversation. I am Editor-in-Chief Reka Kingopop, and today I'm talking with Andre Wilkins, Director of the European Cultural Foundation, ahead of Europe Day or Schumann Day on the 9th of May. In this episode, we discuss how Vladimir Putin's war on Ukraine reminds the European Union of why it needed to unite in the first place, the role of culture workers in the crisis of war and destruction, and ultimately, what one can celebrate on a Europe Day when the very integrity of the European project is being contested. Spoiler alert, Andre Wilkins wants a public holiday dedicated specifically to celebrate and reflect on the European unity. And don't we all? But before we get to the interview, a word about Eurozine itself. After publishing for free for over two decades, we are now facing very severe cuts resulting from the pandemic strain and the diminishing of cultural funding. To remain independent and free, we need our readers and listeners' support, so please do consider becoming a patron from as little as five euros a month, which will help us maintain our extensive coverage of culture and politics in Ukraine, Russia and Belarus, along with the whole of Europe. To support us, go to patreon.com slash eurozine and you'll get exclusive extras and giveaways. This podcast episode is a condensed and edited version of a longer conversation, which is available in its entirety only to our patrons, featuring bonus material about what European youth have been afraid of in the past years and how their concerns have quickly shifted. So let's get into it. Andre Wilkins, it's nice to talk to you again, although a pretty hard occasion. Last year, around this time last year, when we last talked in an interview on the Gagarin podcast, we addressed the question that is very close to both our hearts personally and to both our organizations. And that is the matter of European unity. You have a tendency to leave something in a positive note. You are a professional optimist, which I very much appreciate. And I think European unity has shown great developments in the past even few, well, mainly few weeks, but on a very, very horrible occasion, and that is the war on Ukraine. What are your thoughts? How do you see the question of European unity and the conflict in Ukraine? Thank you um, for inviting me again. And it's, it's a very, as many of us, I'm still shocked and in many ways uh, speechless 
of what happening what's happening because i just couldn't imagine um something like this unbelievable that sometimes i i think i'm in the in, in the wrong film and you know the the horrible um events itself in ukraine and what is happening to ukrainians and to the cities and to the cultural heritage and and so i mean it, it's just um unbelievable so that's one thing um the second thing is what does it mean for european unity i mean time will tell but for a start i think um putin has in its dialectic and cruel way reminded the europeans um, um why they set up um the european union in the first place um and what was the idea behind the european union it was about peace um it was about um prosperity security um it was fi about finding a way to live in europe um together in a some sort of harmony um and overcoming this curse of war which has um you know cursed uh, europe for for centuries so that was the narrative and 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 uh, i remember discussions um i think until now even um to say what is the new narrative of europe because we need a new narrative because this narrative of talking about war and peace that is so old-fashioned and you know it doesn't doesn't catch up um, with the with the young people and i always thought that that was um that wasn't right anyway but uh, now in this cruel way um we don't need to have conferences to look for the new narrative of europe we don't need to have round tables and employ strategies to think of what could we do next in europe um, we still have lots to do and it goes back and down to to the original um founding idea of 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 the new europe as i would say which is still developing and i, I think this uh, founding narrative still makes a lot of sense and people understand that now and i think they come closer together in the um in the event of danger fear threat i see see that a sense of um coming closer together um, and um, thinking together what can we do how can we get through this hardship how can we help our friends in ukraine but also in poland in slovakia um, in hungary and in, 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 in moldova but also thinking of the people in Russia who oppose uh, the, the Putin regime. Well, in an article published on the 1st of March, you argue that peace and security have to be maintained and not just in the core, but also in its eastern edge and generally also on the fringes. You point to sustainable energy policy and, a, and an effective reaction to climate change as well as energy dependency. 
and you make the argument for a joint European army. Now, those are very bold points. No, I think these are uh, very important uh, things, first of all, that we realize together and we're also making the necessary investments to make sure that we, um, as a European community, um, take care together of our security um, and um, and that uh, you know I, I don't refer to NATO as such um, for, because for me um, the European Union and uh, sort of a, the European endeavor is for me the, the kind of umbrella for um, for um, for also military security but for 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 security as such I think we we should develop our own um, security uh, resources and 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 in a way umbrella, and that maybe relates to um, the European Army. I mean, this is an idea which is not mine. It has been started already also in the nineteen fifties, um, and um, it comes up from time to time. Most recently, from President Macron. And you know, I'm I'm not a sort of someone who's promoting or is an expert in, in in the military field. I come to it through through another angle, which is that um, when we talk about new ideas for Europe, usually uh, the question is, well, who will pay for that? Let's say for a bigger Erasmus program or for a cultural deal, and people say, who will pay for that? And then I I said. I came to the conclusion that um, having, um, you know, merging things, which we as Europeans have traditionally 27 of into and then making it European can also save money. And one example is a European army. But I, I think we have 27 um, mediocre armies. So let's create one army which works and in the end is even cheaper than maintaining 27 armies. And it could even be an identity building idea because the people who will serve in that one army will be people from Slovakia, from Greece, from Portugal, from, from Germany, from the Netherlands. Um, and in that sense, it's, it's almost like a, like a um, sort of an exchange program. Um, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a different way. I hope this army will not be have to be active. Um, you know, it will be a, a um, totally defensive army. Um, but even maintaining it could be a, um, could save money and could be an identity building um, thing. So that's uh, about the army because people always ask uh, this. But also the question is how can we together as Europeans, organize our security um, better um, together. So that's uh, uh, one point. The second point is um, energy policy. Um, I've always worked in organizations which dealt with um, human rights, minority rights, and, and so on. And um, But in, in 2006, um, I remember we had an 
meeting about um, how to deal with already then um, um, the deteriorating situation in Russia. There was an NGO law, there was all sorts of threats against uh, the media and so on. And then um, someone said, well, Andre, you work in Brussels. Um, just make sure that the uh, European Commission puts more pressure on, on Putin and Russia. And my response was, well, that's a good idea, but it won't happen because Europe is too dependent on Russian oil and gas. And, and that, um, and I said, you know, what we need to do is we need to develop a, a renewable energy policy. We need to get rid of this dependency because not only um, does it make us dependent, but we are also financing um, Putin's uh, policies and keeping his regime in place. Um, and also it is necessary anyway in terms of um, um, doing something against the threat of um, climate change. So it made a lot of sense for me, but when I then um, um, talked about this at uh, sort of foreign policy and, and, and um, um, democracy conference, I was looked at as someone blue-eyed um, person who suddenly come from uh, human rights um, to energy policy. And I said, you know, yes, energy policy is can be human rights policy. And um, so in that sense, I, I think um, energy policy is actually a policy for um, or, or, or can be and should be, I think, in the European uh, sense. Um, a basis for having a better policy towards Russia and other um, 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 resource-heavy um, countries, where it's not only Russia, you know, where our oil and gas comes from. Um, so I think we, we, we should uh, make whatever is necessary to develop a, a policy um, which is based on renewable energies. And we have moved already already quite a bit, but we are still to depend. So I think this is uh, very crucial. Um, I think this crisis should also remind us how vulnerable we are as Europeans in, in the digital public space, how easy, relatively easy it is to to um, to uh, infiltrate with propaganda and fake news and, and cyber attacks the European digital space. Um, and in, in Europe, we don't have, we have uh, legislation, but we don't have uh, big own players. Uh, we don't have any European platforms. Um, we, we, we use uh, um, American or Chinese or Russian platforms to to exchange um, information and um, I think this needs a, a new approach. Um, we need in a way what I've been saying an Airbus for a European digital public space and maybe now is the time for, 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 for policy makers and but also um, the digital um, entrepreneurs um, to, to make that investment. But to come back to the question, which is so close to both our hearts, and I would like to ask you about uh, this year's Europe Day, which, of course, one can always plan for and then 
react to the emergencies that happen along the way. But even before that, I think we must address the fact that the current Russian aggression is a direct, direct reaction to how Ukrainians have been very consistently enthusiastic and on board for the European unity project. The, the revolution of the Maidan was centered on Ukraine's um, determination for the United Europe and determination to belong in the United Europe. And the Russian aggression ever since, the, the excuses about NATO and EU enlargement have all centered this. So basically with a, you know, with some but not gross simplification, this is an aggression towards um, the expansion of the United Europe. How should Europe address this part of the Russian aggression beyond, of course, the all means of solidarity and, and uh, partnership with Ukraine, which have already been pledged and hopefully will also last? Yeah, I, I, I think, you know, the European um, Union uh, states in his founding documents and it's in the, in the documents it has that any European country um, can become part of the European Union. Any country can become part of the European Union, including um, also Turkey and um, and um, um, Moldova and, and and so on. So that is one. Um, like how quickly it can happen, I think. And and let's say this prospect of membership of the European Union must be maintained, and uh, this, this principle must be maintained. It shouldn't be. Um, decided by others to say uh, we, we don't think so. Um, I think that is simply um, in the founding um, document in the narrative of Europe. I, I, I would maintain that whether how quick that goes we see that with the Balkans um, we, uh, we, um, we see that now um, with, with Georgia and with Ukraine that is another matter and I think um, we, we have to be honest um, with ourselves and also a wake-up call for for us um, Europeans that um, you know a, a policy or a principle has to be honest if it's not honest um, it will be diluted from um, also from others and maybe an example um, which recently came to mind is a sort of you know I, I come from Germany and from East Germany um, and during the whole time uh, Germany was divided um, and you had two separate states and you know the East German side uh, was always saying you know that's it now we're a separate country and, um, and that's the that you know don't think about the United Germany but uh, the West Germany was always maintaining this is a temporary state and um, um, Germany will be united again that was in the constitution and so on and during this whole period of uh, 40 years of division there were many who in terms of realpolitik said well look let's give up on on east germany that's it um, and, and that was a reasonable um, opinion but in the end i think it helped uh, also the people 
um, or particularly also the people on the eastern side, to know that um, this prospect of, in that case, uh, reunification or unification was uh, was serious, was a, was a principle, and in the end, also it happened. Let's let's talk about a huge favorite of both of ours: mm-hmm. official holidays, mm-hmm. and at least one that the European Cultural Foundation and you personally have the ambition to make one, and that is supposedly Europe Day. Uh, Tell me about the ECF's plans for this year's Europe Day, which at this point will have quite a dramatic tenor. President of France and uh, the chair of the um, presidency of the European Union now, uh, Macron, he has launched this discussion on the future of Europe, these conferences, and um, and that should co- culminate in, in May. And I, I think, in principle, it's it's a good idea. Also, as I said, I think we don't need to look so far to find a narrative um, for the future of Europe. It's right in front of our eyes when we look in you to Ukraine. Um, but we thought, okay, let's um, given that this um, expectation to talk about the future of Europe and, and you know the different ideas of what the future of Europe could look like, let's uh, use the 9th of May as um, the the Europe Day and bring all these things together in one place. In our case, it's uh, it's Amsterdam plus the hybrid uh, digital space and talk about these different ideas of how to make Europe a better place. So that was um, the original plan. We wanted to talk about um, various um, things of exchanges uh, within Europe. We want to talk about the idea of a European pavilion network, of uh, how libraries can um, be a driving force uh, for um, um, a better and um, um, a better Europe of citizens, where citizens have a say and be involved. Um, we wanted to talk about the cultural deal for Europe, so that was um, on the agenda and is still on the agenda. But now we have to look at what uh, what um, what the events uh, mean for this program. We still think it is important or. You think so, and I think so, that at least once a year um, we can uh, celebrate um, Europe. Um, what we have achieved, and knowing that this is a this is an imperfect Europe, it's not. I mean, you know, it's it's work in progress. There are so many things. When we look at the whole debate on um, um, colonialization and decolonialization. Um, also, particular also in the art, uh, art and culture world, um, when we look at um, so many um, um, double standards um, in, in in so many areas in Europe, when we look at the state of democracies or declining state of democracy in many countries of Europe, so it's an imperfect Europe, um, but it uh, and that is a reminder in today's world. It is certainly a better Europe um, than the Europe we had um, for centuries, where um, I say that the, the the sport of the Europeans was war, 
and and um, we seem to have overcome this uh, for for almost um, 70 years now. Um, now we are in a situation again where we need to talk about war and peace. Um, but uh, overall, I think uh, Europe has has developed, and uh, that's, let's celebrate and then look at all the things which need to be um, and could be done um, better. So that is um, our idea, my idea for Europe Day. Let's celebrate and also look at um, what still needs to be done to to make things better. And I also think it's actually not fair um, that um, we have um, holidays, national holidays for all the countries in Europe. Um, but for Europe, we don't have a, um, a national holiday. So in the medium term, I hope um, that will also be a, a holiday um, where we take the day off um, and um, celebrate Europe in festivals and parties and music halls and um, clubs and so on. Um, but, um, but of course, uh, 9th of May this year will be, um, will be a special um, day. And I hope, um, as you said at the beginning, I'm an optimist. So let's hope um, that we can celebrate uh, Europe Day on the 9th of May in peace um, and um, with the understanding that this um, um, peace will be maintained um, in Europe um, and also in, in the Eastern um, neighborhood. So that um, In Austria, we even have a public holiday dedicated to how much parents hate to talk with their kids about sex. That is particularly <laughs> the, the Catholic celebration of uh, the Virgin Mary's Immaculate Conception, but that's basically in a nutshell it. The only fortunate thing about this holiday is that it coincides with my younger sister's birthday, so I always have time to make her a cake ever since mm. I've been employed in Austria. So kudos mm. to the Catholic Church for that. And being a Catholic, I can make all the fun of them that I just want because I spend most of my puberty in cold churches instead of sleeping on, sleeping in on a Sunday. So, you know, I feel very entitled to these. But beyond the silly stuff, which I very much appreciate, um, I think there are uh, crucial sort of social, cultural, and of course, sort of hardcore infrastructures that are necessary for a united Europe to properly function and be able to defend itself. I can hear when you talk about a, a united European military, how hard it is for a pacifist, which I believe you are, to talk about the necessity for a military because of course, one never dreams of having to deploy those soldiers, but let's say that they can always be involved in carrying sandbags uh, during a flood or uh, other like civilian operations. Armies were involved with managing um, vaccination campaigns and other other mm. uh, genuinely humanitarian activities throughout the pandemic, etc. So armies are many things, but there are, um, social and cultural infrastructures, which many of us are beating the drums right now to set into motion and supercharge to be able to help uh, Ukrainians, refugees, and those staying in their countries, including uh, Ukrainian culture workers and journalists to maintain their works. The very hard 
thing about um, there are many very hard things about being at war, but one of the genuinely uh, tough challenges uh, for Ukrainian media workers and culture workers right now is that their work is more even more important than it has ever been, and yet there is no means of them making a living let alone fundraising and writing funding applications while their houses are being shelled. So it is a very crucial point to intervene and get active and provide direct help. What kind of infrastructures do you think we need to work on uh, to make this United Europe um, impactful and ready to be available when help is needed? That's... uh actually also a strange um, thing to remember that we are still living in a time where COVID is is still there. We at the European Cultural Foundation have found that the response to COVID uh, was still initially and actually in the end mainly national. At the moment, at the beginning, Europe was not to be seen, then Europe set up the 750 billion fund, which again is distributed locally. Help and solidarity um, it is channeled always through the national uh, way, and they are not enough, I think, um, and we have found not enough cross-border European initiatives of solidarity, of support. There's the European Commission, but we know also that the European Commission has um, a Creative Europe program and an Erasmus program. But in the big scheme of things, these are very much niche um, initiatives um, of of the European Union in comparison to every everything else, and in comparison also to the national support um, given to. Um, cultural workers and artists um, in in the countries and also related to um, initiatives going to um, countries beyond the European Union. So what what I think is missing and we try to do our bit as a European foundation is to provide cross-border cultural experience and, and support and solidarity. So where um, uh, different European actors come together and and work together. Was on the on the pandemic. Um, we had that uh, particularly at the beginning with with Italy, and now um, with Ukraine too. So we have set up a culture of solidarity fund. It's the European culture of solidarity fund as our response, also to show that it is a European. Um, um, uh, solidarity response and not only a Dutch, a German, an Italian, um, a Czech um, or, a, or a Hungarian response. So I, I think that's important um, also in terms of, um, uh, you know, you, you mentioned um, at some point that, you know, you saw uh, in Maidan and afterwards um, 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 Ukrainians standing up with European flags and um, and um, making their commitment to, to, to Europe and, and to the European uh, unity and cooperation. And I think we should um, we should acknowledge that also through European support and not only, um, you know, dividing it up in, 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 in national baskets. Uh, that also 
um, relates to the philanthropic sector because at the end um, um, almost all philanthropy in Europe is national and uh, there are very few uh, European foundations and possibly I don't know um, I can imagine that is also a challenge uh, for for Eurozine in attracting funding for for a European project is much easier to do to get that uh, type of funding and support um, um, for for national actors so I think there's still lots to be done and maybe this crisis can also ignite um, a new sense of, of uh, European cross-border um, collaboration and solidarity. I checked a youth study. Young people listed their fears and it was a very daunting recognition just a few days into Russia's uh, completely unjustifiable war in Ukraine is that they never mentioned war and let alone nuclear annihilation among their major fears. You've been listening to Gogorin, the Eurozine podcast in conversation with Andrei Vilkens of the European Culture Foundation. And if you want more, you can listen to his take on what European youth have been afraid of in the past few years and how their concerns have quickly shifted recently. Visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash Should you wish to help a quality online magazine sustain its work for European public sphere, you can also contact us directly. You can find all the relevant information at eurozine.com support. This episode wouldn't have been possible without our patrons. We owe a big thank you to Randy Smith, Charles Duffel, Debbie Folleron, Krista, Gunnar De Hansson, Richard Gladhill, Sean and Pugh Rollins, Anton Chekhovtsov, Gabriela Zofia Pop, Sophie Lewis, Franz Lagede, Lauren Beck, James Tonnet, Anna Pettersen, Mike Walker, Angetinen, Riley Scott, Vox Europe, Judith Chikos, Eva Marks, Dora Pop, Denise Joy, and Stefan Lemitzal. Thank you for all your support. Please subscribe to the podcast on SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you listen to these kinds of things and leave a review so more people can find us. You can also subscribe to our free weekly newsletter so you'll always know what's worth thinking about. I've been Editor-in-Chief Reka Kinga Pop, and I hope you've enjoyed the program. <laughs>